Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. Caesar, Charlemagne, or Napoleon, you name it, they all have been here. In this episode, I want to talk about how Roman Cologne was governed by the Roman Empire. We must do this on two levels. Firstly, at a local level, how municipal magistrates administered the city. And secondly, we must do it on an imperial level. How was Cologne, or more accurately the region around Cologne, as a whole integrated into the empire? We will get to that in this episode, so stay tuned. As a Roman colony, Cologne and its environs were a copy of Rome, as I'm sure I've said it here countless times before. A separate city law, which of course is no longer handed down and has lost in the course of history, will have made similar demands as for the city of Rome itself. A municipal senate regulated the management of the city and the territory of the entire colony. From among them, the so-called decurions elected the officials for the city and for the colony as a whole. And just as was customary in Rome, the offices were limited to one year in order to prevent abuse of power and corruption. The system was not ideal, as it seems to be on paper, of course. Nepotism was certainly the order of the day here as well. Malicious tongues claim that this is still the case in Cologne today. The assumption that the city senate of Cologne always elected new members itself is probably also true. In most cases, the sons were elected from families that had already been represented in the council. Oh yes, one was elected until the end of one's life, so this was far from being a democracy. And of course, not everyone could be elected to the city council. Women? Slaves? Or in general, men without Roman citizenship? Not a chance. And of course, money was needed. A great deal of money. The historian Werner Eck, from whom I have almost all the information that can be found in his excellent volume of the history of the city of Cologne in Roman times, assumes that a not immeasurable minimum amount of assets was needed to even be considered for membership of the city senate. The exact amount, like so much else, is of course no longer known to us. So, where did these rich male citizens get the fortune for their office? As in all pre-industrial societies for the next 1800 years, through agriculture, land ownership, mining of raw materials, manufacturing and trade. But the latter was always being somewhat frowned upon. Of course, a merchant could become rich through trade and thus make it into the city senate, but mostly he had put his unfortunate into land. For the Romans, this was the most noble way to get rich and to get honor. That's how Rome had grown up, although the days when Rome had been a small rural village were long gone. Gone were also the days when the owner himself went to work. This was now done by slaves, day laborers and employees. The decurions met in the Curia, as did the Senate in Rome. Unfortunately, to this day, we do not know where the Cologne Curia was. Perhaps it never had its own building. Even in Rome, the porch of a large temple was often used as a meeting room for the curia, so that the very narrow curia in Rome on the Forum Romanum did not have to be used. Okay, the decurions, these were the members of the city senate. 
but how many sat on that panel? You may have guessed, we don't know. But we do know the numbers from other cities that had been Roman colonies, so that we can estimate the number in Cologne at about 100. Funnily enough, that is almost the same number of members of the Council of Modern Cologne. Here, today, there are 90 women and men who represent our city. We can assume that this system of decurions existed until the late 4th century after our era, almost 300 years. Therefore, the total number of men ever serving on the city council in Cologne must have been perhaps a few several thousand, considering the time frame and the high mortality rate of the time. Unfortunately, however, we only know of 16 men, and of some we do not even know their names or what offices they held as decurions. Mostly we have this little knowledge only because corresponding gravestones were found. These often survived the time well because of their material composition and well hidden in the ground until archaeologists found them. Or because in later times, these gravestones were used as building material in other buildings. The city senate with the decurions as its members elected the leaders of the colony as mentioned above. At the top were the du umvern, Latin for two-man college. They were probably mainly responsible for the administration of justice. However, only as far as civil law cases were concerned. One example is that they were only allowed to hear disputes up to a certain amount of money. Exactly how much that was, you guessed right, we don't know, unfortunately. Everything that was above that, as well as crimes as murder or theft, lay solely in the jurisdiction of the governor of the province. But we will get to that later. It may seem strange that the leaders of the city, the Duum Vern, were also responsible for the administration of justice, but that's how it was back then. And for those times, the Romans were far ahead of their time with fixed legal texts, further ahead than in some later times. And whoever wants to become a lawyer or judge today should and must familiarize himself with Roman law. The Duum Vern chaired the sessions of the city senate, which could not take place without them. However, the Duum Vern were completely dependent on the goodwill of the Senate. Only the Senate could pass resolutions to allocate new building land or provide money for repair work on a road. In addition, there were also the Aediles and the Questors in Cologne, and I hope I pronounced these Latin offices in an English way that you can understand them. Those who are familiar with the state structure of the city of Rome will also know these offices from the Eternal City. As I said, as a Roman colony, Cologne is a direct copy of her founder Rome, in honor, rights and duties. By the way, the official titles of the offices were much longer. The Romans simply liked long titles. Cologne's Roman name, Colonia, Claudia, Ara, Agrippinensium, is a particularly good example of this but I prefer to stick with the short forms. Like all higher city offices, the Aediles and Questors were traveling as a two-man college. First, we should talk about the Aediles. They kept order in the city. In detail, this means that they checked that everything was in order at the markets, for example, check if sufficient goods supplied the city, and that the market traders did not use false weights and measures to cheat their customers. They also took care of maintenance of buildings Nothing is worse than a fire that burns down the whole city, a manner of urban life which still threatens cities today. And of course, they also inspected the infrastructure for its efficiency. Streets had to be clean and in good condition. 
not only in the city itself but in the whole area of the colony, which includes large parts of the surrounding countryside. For ancient Cologne, the city did not end directly at the city wall, but went far beyond it. Cologne was the central place of the colony. The city served the colony, not the colony the city. The homesteads, inns, highways, exchange offices and other businesses in the surrounding area also belong to the legal sphere and the territory of Cologne. But we will discuss this in an episode pretty soon, I promise. Also, the mentioned water supply and sewage from our previous episode had to be maintained, of course. Otherwise, you will literally be up to your neck in at some point. Of course, the two Edals did not do all the work themselves without help. For maintenance work, the city, on the instruction or advice of the Edals, was happy to commission and pay local companies for that. Particularly in the case of trunk roads, it was obvious that local estate owners themselves, with their slaves and employees, carried out the repair work. If this was not sufficient, it was quite common and also mandatory to involve citizens in such services. The law provided for every male citizen a fixed number of days for this purpose. In Cologne, this was probably five days a year for every citizen. If one had a team with wagons, then these had to be made available for municipal tasks three days a year in case of need. Let's close the city's leadership positions with the questors. Translated into modern times, they were rather low-ranking officials. They were probably in charge of the archives and the city treasury. So, they were classic civil servants in the modern sense. Especially the archives were important. Here major documents, legal texts, wills, decrees, etc. were kept. As far as the city treasury was concerned, however, the questors were exclusively in charge of the documentation. The financial sovereignty lay, as mentioned, of the senate of the city and the Duumvirn. Nevertheless, their posts and their knowledge of the city's finances were important and whoever exercised the office of quester wisely could achieve great influence. So these six men ran the city and the territory of the entire Roman colony of Cologne. Naturally, these men had a large number of auxiliary personnel at their disposal. Scribes, secretaries, scholars, lawyers, security personnel, messengers, accountants and slaves for the transportation of documents and materials. With the exception of the latter, all these men were free men. So they were either Roman citizens, born free or slaves set free. But before we continue, we have to take a look at the bigger picture as well. Cologne was the capital of the Roman military district of Lower Germania since the establishment of the Opidum Ubiorum, which would be later Roman Cologne, by Agrippa around the year 1. Historians are still debating today whether Roman Cologne was not already the capital of a Roman province Germania under Emperor Augustus. After all, large parts east of the Rhine and thus also east of Cologne had come under Roman rule by 12 BCE. Only the defeat of Roman governor Varus a few years later in 9 CE caused the Romans to abandon Germania on the right bank of the Rhine in the long term. We talked about that in the episode about the Opidum Ubiorum. With this, the plan to make Cologne a Roman province of a greater Germania controlled by Rome had been destroyed. That this was planned is clearly shown by the central sanctuary that was building Cologne, and it seemed to be still important. The word Ara in the long name of ancient Cologne, Colonia, Claudia, Ara, Agrippinensium, continues to bear witness to this, and the name was given to the city long after the Romans had lost 
the right side of the Rhine to the Germanic peoples. But to which area of the Roman Empire belonged Cologne, the Cologne lowland, and the surrounding area up to the North Sea? De facto it had been a part of the province Belgica since the time of Caesar's conquest. During the time of Augustus a few decades later, however, as already mentioned, the military district of Lower Germania was formed, to which the Oppidum Ubiurum, later Cologne, belonged. The northern border of this military district ran from the North Sea at Katwijk over to Nijmegen in today's Netherlands, and the latter being, as we learned a few episodes before, was the central place of the Batavians. The southern border was marked by the Wingstbach. I know this is a fine German word. Wingstbach is a small stream which is really small compared to the big Rhine River. This stream is about 80 kilometers or 50 miles south of Cologne. Beyond this border was the also new military district of Upper Germania, quasi the twin sibling of Lower Germania, which continued down all the way to the Alps. But I don't want to go into the similarities and dif differences of Upper and Lower Germania in order not to blow up the actual topic of this podcast even further. This stream, the Wingstbach, small indeed, but throughout history was still an important border marker. And this is also the translation of its name, Wingst, is derived from the Latin word Finis, border. Bach is German and means stream, so Wingstbach just means border stream. In the east, of course, the border was clearer. That was the Rhine River, because on the right bank of the Rhine, the Romans had unofficially given up any direct claim to power. Emperor Claudius, for example, remember, Agrippina's husband and uncle, had given the strict order not to conquer anything on the right bank of the Rhine during his reign. In the west, to define the border of the military district of Lower Germania, it is a bit more complicated. What is clear is that at least the Maas region around the present-day cities of Maastricht and Venlo in the Netherlands belonged to it. But where exactly the border was, and then further west the Roman province of Bergica already began, is still a question that historical science must solve. Is that all confusing for you, even especially for those who are not from Europe or from Central Europe? I see that this calls for a map, which you can look up on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com. Check it out, please. At the end of the 1st century CE, the Romans decided to transform these military districts from just being military districts into full Roman provinces. A territory was always transformed into a province when the Romans decided that this was now Roman soil for an eternity. But for Germania, they waited a long time to transform these territories into an official Roman province. And there is a lot to tell about why the Romans did it or why they waited so long for doing that. But I will not go into the further background about the establishment of the province of Lower Germania too much. Why? For the same reason why the historical sources are so poor about that event. So I hope I make this very briefly, which I guess will not be that case. Between the years 85 to 90 CE, the exact date is not known to us, the military district of Lower Germania was converted into a province. The Roman Emperor Domitian was in fact free from the burdensome legacy of the Julian-Claudian dynasty. Remember with Nero, the last male heir from this dynasty had died in 68 CE. Their eternal trauma had been not to have conquered Germania since Augustus' time. 
Emperor Domitian, and I hope this is the way you pronounce him in English, however decided to acknowledge the facts. Just as for the neighboring military district of Upper Germania, a simple renaming for Lower Germania was carried out, which was propagated as the founding of a province, and even a conquest in Rome. Now, Roman-controlled Germania finally had provinces, and no military districts anymore. What Domitian's predecessors had failed at, Domitian had completed. He declared Germania conquered. The fact that the geographical circumstances had hardly changed at all was left out of Domitian's propaganda, though. The Germanic peoples on the right bank of the Rhine continued to live a life largely free of Rome, well, except perhaps in trade and some tributes for those who were in close contact to them. But this is the History of Cologne podcast, so what changed in the everyday life of the people of Roman Cologne or the other now provincial inhabitants? Well, actually, nothing. This seems to be the reason why their sources are so scarce about the details of the elevation of Lord Germania to a province, probably because simply not much had changed in the circumstances. Above all, nothing changed in the living reality of the people of Cologne and the surrounding area. They had lived in a Roman colony since Agrippina's time, in the 50s CE, and maybe large proportions of the inhabitants had already been granted Roman citizenships even way earlier under Agrippa and Augustus' rule. Only the name of the region was practically different now. It was no longer the military district of Lower Germania, but the province of Lower Germania. And the commander of the military district of Lower Germania became simply the governor of the province of Lower Germania. That is why I call these gentlemen, like Vitalius or Agrippa, governors before in my episodes about them, because they already had the power a governor of an official province had. Nothing changed in their rights and duties except the name. And of course, Cologne had already had all the rights and duties of a Roman colony, including its quasi-autonomous self-administration. As the largest settlement and military headquarter of the military district of Lower Germania, Cologne had already been the de facto capital anyway. In spite of the fact that for decades, more than 70 years, the entire region of Rome-controlled Germania had been in a state of legal limbo between Gaul and Germania and between Emperor Augustus and Emperor Domitian's rule, both military districts of Upper and Lower Germania had been of immense importance for the Roman Empire in total. Since the time of Caesar, most of the who-is-who of the Roman ruling elite had been represented here or had their origins here. I just list a few names you know and might not know of because I've never talked about them, but here we go. Agrippa, Drusus, Tiberius, Varus, Germanicus, Agrippina, Vitalius, etc. I could go on. All those famous Romans, they had been here or had connections to this area. And not to forget the large amounts of legionaries in this area. In the first century CE, there were certainly about 35,000 soldiers stationed just in Lower Germania. That is an enormous number for that time. This is about 15-20% to of the total military power of Rome that was stationed only here in Lower Germania. And don't forget, Rome had many provinces at the height of her power, over 40s in number. And Lower Germania was only one of those 40. So, like I said, around 85 CE, Cologne was not only a self-governing unit as a Rome colony, it was also the capital of the new province of Lower Germania. And as I said, of course not much has changed in the everyday life of the people there. 
the political, military and administrative structure remained the same. The province and before that the military district of Lower Germania was under direct imperial jurisdiction, now being an imperial province. And this is not surprising, although there were also numerous provinces in which the Roman Senate only appointed and nominated the governor, largely from within its own ranks. These senatorial provinces were located in strategically insignificant or, shall we say, harmless places for the Roman Emperor. It is therefore obvious that a province in which so many soldiers were stationed and which was located on the edge of the empire, which represented the northern flank of it, was entirely subject to the sovereignty of the emperor. Since Augustus, every emperor had always installed men as the head of the province in whom he believed he could trust. How well this worked out in Empress Galba's case of Vitalius in 69 CE is written in the history books. And don't forget that even in 14 CE, Agrippina's father, the popular Germanicus, faced a revolt by his own soldiers who preferred to see him on the throne instead of Augustus' desired successor Tiberius. Just because Germanicus refused and put an end to the revolt of his own soldiers, what was to happen through Vitalius 55 years later did not take place. So, whoever became governor here in Lower Germania was one of the most powerful men in the empire alongside the emperor and the other important provincial governors. This was probably also the reason why the financial sovereignty of the province like tax collection did not lie with the governor of Lower Germania, but with the imperial procurator who stayed far away in the neighboring province of Belgica. This was assumingly intended to prevent the respective governor from becoming too powerful. Vitalius sent his greetings once again. A further measure was that the term of office was often only for two or three years, then the incumbent governor was recalled or transferred to other high positions. In this way, the respective emperor reduced the danger of a powerful opponent emerging on the Rhine. Will that work? Well, we will certainly find out in the course of this podcast. So what were the requirements to become the governor of Lower Germania? There was no exact checklist, but three criteria can be roughly presented. First of all, of course, loyalty to the emperor. Secondly, even though the republic had been long dead since the days of Caesar, the classic republican marathon for offices still had to be run. Become a senator in Rome, then hold public offices up to praetor or consul in Rome, the latter often together with the emperor. Only then did one become a possible candidate for being a governor of an imperial province. Thirdly, a variety of experience. A governor should be an all-rounder. He needed many years of military experience and success. But the one to be governor was not just the commander of the troops stationed in the province. One had not been just a simple general being the commander of the military district of Lower Germania in the first place. The future governor also had to know his way around the law as the supreme judge of the province. His judgments could only be revoked personally by an appeal to the emperor far away in Rome. Remember, the governor had to hear cases that were beyond the jurisdiction of Cologne Doom Verns. The one to be governor also had to have extensive knowledge of administrative management. And last but not least, he was also responsible for the correct execution of religious cults. The Romans were comparatively tolerant of religion. Well, except for the early Christians and Jews. But every civil servant was expected to make the necessary sacrifices for the Roman gods and the deified emperor for the protection of the common good. 
The Jews and the early Christians refused to do this because of their monotheism. This made them the target of persecution and pogroms. But we will also come to religion in Roman Cologne in a further episode where we'll talk about that, so I won't go into any further detail yet. The separation of powers familiar to us today was not yet conceived and would not be for many centuries to come, nor was the separation between civil and military officers, especially with the Romans. This always went hand in hand. As a result, the governor often had to appear in different roles in many different subject areas, as perhaps in the example of the Great Waterline we described in the last episode. With a length of 95 kilometers or 60 miles, the governor of Lower Germania will certainly have had his hands in it. Together with the Roman legionaries, he had the workers and the expertise to tackle such a project. Here, he was the builder owner. For such a regional project throughout the whole province, he had to give his approval anyway. Here, being the classical authority, giving its consent. If disputes had to be settled because the waterline might have gone through a certain Ubian settlement or a farmer saw his feel in danger, the governor acted as a mediator. And whoever is active in the construction industry, perhaps you, dear listener, you know how many complaints can arise when you try to build something, especially a building like that that is 95 kilometers long. It was no different then than it is now. A governor was thus many things. A general, a civil servant, a builder, a judge, a high priest, a mediator, a strategist, and, and, and so on. Of course, the governor also had extensive staff with him and did not come to his new assigned province alone. Most of the time his family was with him, which is the reason why Agrippina was born here in the Oppidum Obiorum, later Cologne, because her father Germanicus had been governor. The governor also came with a retinue of freedmen, slaves, experts, advisors and some personal friends and followers. And since power always attracts enemies, he was accompanied by a bodyguard force that must have been about 200 men strong. When a new governor arrived in his province and reached the capital, in our case Roman Cologne, he was welcomed in a procession into the city. It is even possible that the people of Cologne had to line the streets to show their loyalty. At the end of this line were of course the lords of the city, the Decurians and the two Doomverns, who then performed the official welcome ceremony for the governor. As impressive as Rome Cologne must have been at that time, especially for the mostly agrarian Ubians, Cologne was situated on the outskirts of the empire. When a new high magistrate came to the city from Rome, the center of the then known world, this was of course a great event for all Cologne citizens. But where did the governor live at in Cologne? Well, the governor, his retinue and his servants were accommodated in the Praetorium, the governor's palace in Cologne. The building was constantly subject to structural changes, as was the city of Cologne itself in Roman times. The first building was about 60 meters long, but probably only about 4 meters deep. That should be about 65 yards in length and 4.5 yards in width. Width, 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 how you pronounce that? which is half the length of an American football field, but only about one-tenth of its width. Man, that is an English word I will never pronounce correctly. In later times, it was enlarged again in length, so it was 100 meters or 110 yards long. It was located in the eastern part of the city, directly at the city wall, which pointed to the Rhine. It must have been very visible as a long but narrow building. 
In 184 CE, the Praetorium was to be completely demolished and rebuilt, but I will come to that in a later episode. This long and narrow Praetorium must be enough for now. It is the building where Vitalius in 69 CE found his dining room in flames after he had declared himself the new emperor and had been parading through the streets of Cologne. With his dining hall on fire, this was considered as a bad omen by the gods for declaring himself the new emperor of Rome. But how do we know these exact measurements of the early Praetorium of Cologne? As I said, we will come to the further cause of the Praetorium in a later episode, and it will take us well beyond the Roman era of Cologne, but only so much. When in the year 1953, shortly after the Second World War, the so-called Spanish building, the building of the Cologne City Hall was to be rebuilt, the workers found by accident the Roman Praetorium when excavating the place for laying foundations. It is thanks to the later mayor of Cologne, Friedrich Jacobs, that he raised the then enormous sum of 300,000 German marks to save this important legacy of our city's Roman history from destruction. Which was really in consideration because I get it, in war-torn Cologne, people had other worries such as housing shortages and supply issues and actually no money to treat themselves to expensive archaeological prestige objects. After all, post-war Cologne itself was still largely a landscape of ruins, but the necessary money was raised and the Praetorium was saved from destruction, so it is still available for posterity. But as I already said in the last episode, it is currently closed. A larger, more extensive museum is currently being built and, knowing our city as I do, the construction will take some time. A lot of time, I guess. But I digress. But without a telephone, internet or modern civil service apparatus, as well as an era that extended far beyond Cologne city walls, this meant that the governor of Lower Germania was often not at home. Most of the time his schedule book was well filled and the governor traveled through his province to fulfill all the offices and duties I had already listed. One week he might have spent in the town of today's Zülpich, back then being called Tolbiakum to pronounce judgment. Then he traveled further west to inspect the construction of the big waterline from our last episode, and finally going south of Cologne to travel to today's Bonn, which was also populated by Ubian settlers, to inspect the legion that was stationed there, and to convince himself of its suitability for military service. There he might have received a message that there had been an attempted Germanic attack further down the Rhine. So the governor immediately returned to Cologne to the Praetorium to coordinate the countermeasures. This sequence of events I have of course thought up and there may have been many boring years for governors, but this could have been the everyday life of a governor in Cologne and Lower Germania back then. How did the governor travel to all these places? The journey across the streets was arduous, Roman engineering or not, so the Rhine River served as a kind of autobahn German highway. The governor had his own yacht for traveling by water, we know this because a corresponding gravestone was found, which indicates that the owner of it worked as the captain of the governor's yacht. Yacht. That's how you pronounce it in English, I guess. Well, I think that was enough for this time. I hope I was able to wrap this up in a reasonably interesting way. It is important to understand the background of political society. I think that when we look at Roman Cologne, Many institutions and political mechanisms seem very familiar to us. At the same time, however, many things are also different. 
It is particularly this circumstance, the similarities and differences in comparison to our time, which makes this subject area exciting for me. I hope that was exciting for you too. Next time, you will unfortunately have to dress up and prepare yourself a little. Gentlemen, put on your best toga. Ladies, put on your best clothes. Your children shouldn't wear a tattered tunic. We'll all meet at the Cardo Maximus, the main street in Rome, Cologne. Because in 98 CE, we are expecting a distinguished visitor. The new governor of Lower Germania, the great Trajan or Trajan, is coming to Cologne. And we don't want to come across like a bunch of barbarians, do we? Especially when Trajan learns shortly after his arrival in our beloved city that his adoptive father and Emperor Nerva has died and that he is now the new emperor. In that sense, as the ancient Romans would say, congratulatur vobis pro attentionem, meaning thank you for your attention and as always, auf Wiedersehen. Oh wait, if you like my podcast, I think you do, because you listened till the end, why don't you consider subscribing to this podcast? Leave me a rating in Apple iTunes if you use this platform, or follow me on Instagram or Facebook. I hope that is not too much CTA for you guys. Dankeschön. <laughs>